0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com
1: slash Wondery. I fear that this will lead to breaking of the European Union. Before, it was just the euro, but when they tied the fate of the European Union or the mechanisms of the European Union to the euro, this whole thing may fall apart. That's the gamble they took, and I don't know, it, it, it was a stupid gamble if you ask me. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and Crypto.com. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW.
0: What's going on, guys? It is Friday, July 24th, and today we have a returning guest. Thomas Melanin is back to talk about the European Union's new recovery plan, and interestingly, Unlike many of the headlines that we've seen throughout this week, Thomas is very skeptical and perhaps represents a point of view that is being under-indexed in media right now. We'll get into that after the brief. First up on the brief today, let's talk about where jobs are coming back. As I've been saying, I'm trying to keep a balance of the economic data that is negative as well as the economic data that is more positive. And frankly, part of the conclusion that leads me to is that we have to get really specific. We can't look at, quote unquote, the economy as a monolith, just like we can't look at real estate as a monolith. So let's look at where jobs have been coming back, because that may give us some insight into what's doing well and what's not. In terms of a percentage change in employment between April and June, here are the industries that are doing best. Dentist offices are up over 100%. Personal services, amusements and gambling, clothing stores, sightseeing, transportation are all over 50% as well. Furniture stores are at about 50%, food service is just under 50%, and motor vehicle manufacturing is closer to 40%. Some of this, it seems, represents just people who are actually coming back, but then others perhaps also reflect an increased demand because of pent-up demand from the few months of shutdown. In terms of the overall percentage of newly posted jobs since May, the industries that have the most openings are healthcare, which has about 17% of new openings, transportation and storage, which is about 15%, business, broadly defined, I don't even know why that's a category because no one knows what the hell it means, is roughly 14%, technology is a little under 10%, retail is a little over 5%, and again, these are the percentages of the total number of job openings. Finance and insurance, manufacturing, construction, education, and real estate round out the top 10. The interesting thing about this is that you see healthcare obviously as one of the beneficiaries, or at least as one of the areas where there are more openings. That makes sense in the context of still continuing to have to deal with this crisis and having to live with it. But I think that the promising part of that is that staffing up in that area means that we might be able to better deal with it outside of some do sex machina like an early vaccine. Ultimately, I think a lot of this is still lagging data, right? And it doesn't necessarily reflect a potential new wave of layoffs that come from continuing shutdowns or rather continuing issues with the coronavirus and the potential shutdowns or micro shutdowns that might occur. So, it's important to note that this is all very up in the air, but I still think it's worth looking into which industries relatively speaking are doing better than others. Next up on the brief, China has retaliated from the U.S. closing China's Houston consulate. I'm only going to cover this briefly because on the weekly recap tomorrow, I'm going to go a little bit more in depth about the week as it relates to U.S. China, but this is basically a normal tit-for-tat or maybe what we would have expected as a tit-for-tat. China has ordered the U.S. to close the Chengdu consulate in response to Houston, has said that it was a legitimate and necessary response, this is a quote, to the unreasonable behavior of the U.S., and creates the necessary conditions for bringing the bilateral relationship back to normal. So again, it could not be more of a tit-for-tat if you define tit-for-tat. And as I said, I will go into this more tomorrow in the weekly recap, but you'll remember my overall framework is, is this a new Cold War or are we seeing a new Cold War emerge? And two, if the main critique of that line of thinking is that these countries are too interconnected, Then we should be watching things and moves and political machinations that serve to unwind that connection. Last up on the brief today, is the dollar losing its luster? The US dollar is having its worst month since the beginning of 2018, and a new article in Bloomberg identifies a few reasons why. The first is negative real interest rates, the second is the ongoing issues with the coronavirus, and the third is a pickup in global risk sentiment, i.e. an attraction to riskier assets again. There are some really interesting comments from a number of global investors in this article, and I want to read a couple. This one is from Australia at QIC Limited and says, U.S. exceptionalism has eroded with perhaps only one pillar still standing, demand for big cap U.S. stocks. The U.S. no longer has a yield advantage. There's no growth advantage with the recovery from the coronavirus likely to prove more challenging than other developed markets. Another comment, which is from GSFM in Canada, I've generally had a disposition for a few years to be a dollar bull, but that has changed a bit this year. The Fed has lowered rates, Europe seems to have gotten its act together on the fiscal front, and the dollar is also suffering from completely dysfunctional politics in the US. Interestingly, a lot of these global actors view the euro as potentially the beneficiary, as U.S. politics look completely ineffectual and Europe has, at least to some, outdone itself or at least outdone expectations as it related to addressing this crisis. The dollar and the role of the dollar in the world and its relative strength or weakness is, of course, one of the most important ongoing macro conversations and certainly one that we keep coming back to and will continue to keep coming back to on the breakdown. But with that little update, let's actually turn our attention to Europe. Our main conversation today is with Tuomas Malinen. Tuomas is the CEO of GNS Economics. He is an adjunct professor of economics at the University of Helsinki. And he was on the show a few months ago talking about the global response to coronavirus economically, and specifically, the European response. At that time, he discussed the idea that the best way to save the European Union might be to abandon the euro. And effectively, his point was that member countries don't want to support each other because they are compelled by Brussels to do so, they want to have the ability to have bilateral relationships with one another, and the currency union was increasingly putting pressure on that type of arrangement. As you will see on this show, his views have now evolved even further, and Thomas is firmly in the euro skeptic camp. He calls the new recovery plan stealth federalization, and I thought it would be great to have him back to explain one, what was the recovery plan that was passed earlier this week that made news around the world? What did it consist of? And two, why was it creating consternation? As Tuomas tweeted recently, the fund will not lead to a recovery in Europe as it is way too small and the crisis is global. The fund will just illegally establish a transfer union in the EU And push us into a federalization, and without the consent of the people. Let's dive in. All right, we are back with Thomas Melinén. Hey, how are you?
1: Fine. I'm. Thanks. I'm doing fine. How are you?
0: Good, I'm good. It's great to have you back. So, you know, I was just saying this to you beforehand, but a couple months ago, we had you on the show uh, to talk about effectively what the crisis meant in terms of a pivotal moment in the history and trajectory of the European Union. And part of what you were arguing at the time was that the right way to save the union itself might be to abandon the euro. In other words, you were looking towards less economic integration in some ways, but instead we've seen... Kind of the opposite happened. So maybe you could describe first for people who haven't been following the news, what has been going on and what was just passed as the recovery plan?
1: Yes. Well, OK, the, the situation has changed quite drastically when we last talked. Is the, the European Commission, with the strong support of, of Germany and, and France, basically did is that they tied the fate of the EU to the fate of the euro. So they, what they um, um, proposed was a fund where the European Union would issue debt using our guarantees and distrib- distribute uh, some part of that debt as grants and, and the other part as loans. And what the European leaders now agreed uh, uh, in the meeting just ended just on Monday was that yeah we have the 750 billion euros fund from which there will be um um, 390 billion euros will be given out as grants and 360 million euros as loans and as it goes all the countries will issue guarantees for the european commission which will then issue debt and and Give it out uh, in in accordance with the sums that I just described, and yeah, and well, but it still has to pass all the all the 27 parliaments, and and I can tell you now that it will not be easily passed in Finland. There is a mutiny growing here.
0: Well, and that's exactly what I want to get into. But just, I think a a couple things to to help people get into this a little bit before. You had this great thread on, uh, you called the stealth federalization. And the first part of it was an explanation of, it was almost a, a general or theoretical look at the challenge of currency unions. And basically, your argument was that they tend to lead to the weak getting weaker, eventually leading to a debt crisis. So can you explain That theoretical part first, uh, because I think it was really helpful for helping people understand where we are now and and the specific decisions being made.
1: Yeah, sure. It's it's actually both theoretical and empirical because we know that this is how the situation has evolved in current But it starts from the notion that there is a, a complex mix of political, institutional, cultural, and economic norms and and uh, uh, and developments that. Um, guide or drive the the development of both competitiveness and, and productivity in each country. So each country has this mix, and, and it, it's, the mix is naturally as long as the history of a country. And in Europe, some countries like Greece and Italy, they have over 2,000 years of history, almost 3,000 years. And so when a country has its own foreign exchange rate, its job is basically to to, um, to reflect these differences, to even them out, and and also reflect the the ability of the government to to keep up with its finances or the sustain sustainability of of the government finances. And when you remove that foreign exchange rate, when countries join a currency union. So you remove this stabilizing force, but the mix of, of cultural, political, and economic norms and and, and actions uh, or, or factors still remain. And what happens is that in the currency union, usually weaker countries tend to lose their competitiveness and, and productivity in respect with the with the stronger countries, and so. The weak countries tend to get weaker in a in currency union in economic terms. But what also happens is that when a, in a weaker nation joins a currency union with the group of, of stronger nations, uh, its interest rate or her interest rates start to come down as the, uh, um, as the international investors view the currency union kind of a creditor backstop. Meaning that if if, if a weaker country or so any country in the currency union gets into trouble, the, uh, the investor will be bailed. Investors will be bailed out, and so uh, and this is what actually has actually happened in, in in Europe. But what so what happens, tends to happen in currency union is weaker countries get weaker, their productivity declines, and also the productive capital or the production uh, productive capital moves to the strong nations. But their uh, cost of their borrowing falls, so they become less productive, but more highly indebted. And then a, a shock hits. You know, it, it can be anything from a from a pandemic to a financial crisis or whatever. There's always a shock in in in, in economies. And and when that happens, the private investors who have been giving money to the institutions, the weaker weaker nations. They get scared of the risks that the investments there pose and start to go away from the country. So there's a capital there's an outflow of private finance or capital. And the governments usually try to cover this by issuing the, more of their own debt and increasing their um, uh, revenues or expenses that is. But at the same time when the economy goes in a more bad way because of the shock, the, the government debt in share of GDP becomes very high. And at some point, for, uh, uh, international investors think that or start to doubt that the co- government cannot pay the debt back. And then a, a debt crisis emerges. And this is actually what happened in, in Eurozone between 2008 and 2010.
0: And so this is, I think, really key because it feels to me like part of what you have been observing is... Uh, an evolution that's a shift away from the European Union's original kind of charter and mandate. So I guess, can you explain how the EU was set up to deal or not deal with this type of issue initially? And then what has been changing, whether sort of legally or
1: not? Well, yeah, when the EU was created, especially when the euro was created, it was agreed that we don't share the fiscal burden of other countries. It was called the No Bailout Rule, and it was uh, defined in the Treaty of the Function of the European Union, Article 125. So this is very crucial. And there was also another uh, article which uh, um, relates to the current recovery fund, it's, which was the uh, TFO Article 310, which effectively states that uh, the European Commission or the, Euro- the budget of the of the European Union cannot be deficit financed. Meaning that it cannot uh, take debt to cover its expenses. So these, these were the two key elements, and the, the, the no bailout rule became a problem in 2010 when there was a debt crisis, or it was actually a banking crisis. But there, there were Greece, Italy, uh, not ideally Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Ireland got into trouble because of the process I just described. So they were heavily indebted. Uh, and then they would you know so <laughs> the the German and French leaders basically get scared uh because their banks had lent heavily to the southern countries or the um or the weaker countries of the eurozone, and so they had to you know uh, create some kind of a bailout fund and so they created the european financial stability facility a great name e f s f and it issued debt in a uh, uh, um backed by the members of the eurozone and gave out loans to the crisis hit countries and they were um these loans had conditions which meant that the countries needed to uh make structural reforms cut their pensions cut their you know, social security funds etc so that's when the european stealth federalization started but the, it was the original aim of the of the of EU and also the eurozone, there would be no fiscal uh, mutual fiscal responsibility, then that's, that has now been broken.
0: Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. What's going on, guys? I'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is Crypto.com. Crypto.com offers one of the most cost-efficient ways to purchase crypto out there What is this the new mechanism uh, around European debt, or that the recovery fund implements?
1: Well, yeah. Well, first, it, it, uh, it the first time ever uh, uh, creates a um, a process or, or a mechanism where the European Union, actually, the Commission, uh, and take, take debt and issue grants through their budget. So this preaches to Article 310, naturally, and also the Article 125. And there, there's kind of two mechanisms. This is the first one. So this is the first ever construct that the EU takes debt and gives out grants and loans. Well, the EU has given loans out before, but never grants. And the second is kind of a, a philosophical one, because it states the European Commission has argued that we are currently in an economic, economic emergency which which means that the rules do not apply that they can take on debt and you know give it out. and it it establishes a practice it, it if this goes through it, it it establishes a practice which states that the treaties of the European Union do not apply in an economic emergencies in in, in general terms and this is this is this is a process. This basically this establishes a, a, a transfer union.
0: So I'm interested to see to get your take on uh, on the motivations, right? So who was driving this particular approach and why? And I guess the question is almost two part. One is what's the financial or political motivation in the short term, or that is specific to this crisis, and then second. Uh, is there a force, is this basically an excuse for a force that is interested in greater fiscal integration anyways? Because it feels to me like that part of the issue here is that there's uh, just competing competing visions for the future of the EU in general. And this is a uh, an opportunity in this crisis to drive it to closer fiscal integration for some parties that had perhaps wanted that.
1: Yeah. Well, the answer to the second question is yes, but let's go to the first one. So uh, the first, first. So, um, yeah, so um, the, the, the idea of the recovery fund came from the German and French leaders. And we can naturally just speculate what were the actual motivation, but I'm keen to think that it was twofold. First, uh, French and German banks have uh, lent uh, to Italy uh, close to 500 billion. Euros worth of you know, funding, or I've given them loans of that amount. So, and Italy is is taking a serious serious hit now. It's it's the weaker, weakest nation basically in the uh, in the eurozone at the moment. She has dead levels of over 100% of GDP. Productivity is low. Her economy has not basically grown since. 2000 when it when uh, when she joined the eurozone it's at the same level so the european uh, the german and french leaders got scared that first italy leaves and defaults and then there have then there will be a serious hit to the banks and of course they were afraid i think that the whole eurozone will break up and that would that could cause germany dearly because we have the target to imbalances and and ecb liabilities and all that so in short term we can say that in a short, uh, in, in, a, um, in a in a short term perspective this is a bribe to italy to stay in the euro the recovery fund Interesting, interesting. And for uh, a if, if, in a longer perspective, there's definitely been the push for further integration, deeper integration, all along in the European Union. And this is what is now this is the actual, the second actual aim of the recovery fund to push us into a transfer union and then into a federation, and without asking the consent of the of the European citizens, which is, I think, just obnoxious. <laughs>
0: Does the support break down on those lines? Or I guess maybe let's broaden that question out. What has the response been uh in in Europe? Is it country by country? Is it divided within countries? And to the extent that it's divided, who's on what side? Does it break strictly along the lines of people who want more fiscal integration versus not? Or is it more complex than that?
1: Well, I don't I don't really I don't really have, have the time to look what other countries have said. Yeah. But <laughs> sure. but in Finland I think there is a, a a true mutiny going on now. So I, when I speak to people who oppose it, they are in all socioeconomic groups, in all kind of political groups. It's very, very, very wide, the discontent of the people. So it basically goes like you have the ordinary people and those who are critical to the European Union before against those who... Strongly believe on the European uh, European Union and the common currency or the EU believers, and I think they are grave minority at this moment. So there is a uh, the discontent of of dissatisfaction of the Finnish people towards the the recovery fund is very high now. So do you
0: think that the recovery fund has actually pushed some people into that position who perhaps were pro European Union before? I mean I know you've been going on this kind of journey where I mean listeners should know you're not like a, a an anti-European advocate. This is a, a a lot of your positions have been evolving and and you know uh, contextual to specific events that have happened.
1: Yeah, I turned to as an EU skeptic in just 2 months ago when Basically, the, the fund was proposed. It was. I, I saw it right away that this is, this will take us to the federation without the consent of the people, and we cannot tolerate that. But yes, the, what I see when I talk to people in my close um, uh, close to me, or you know, people in general in mm-hmm. Finland. It's it, all, many of the EU supporters have turned as critics because of the fund. Finns don't want to pay the bills of other countries. That's, that's how it has always been. We have all man, always managed by ourselves uh, and tried to manage by ourselves as, as, uh, as, uh, as, long as we could. Of course, solidarity amongst other, other nations is a different thing. And, and Finland have been doing that for a long time, but we just, we, we just don't like the situation where someone outside the country takes our money and gives it away. And that's that's where the mutiny of the Finns is is currently uh, rising from.
0: You explained this last time for for listeners who haven't listened to that show. I definitely think you should because there's a lot more of a even a background and a history. But the way that you explained this before is that. This wasn't about a disinterest in bilateral support relationships. It was a frustration with the mechanism where it's basically those relationships get uh, centralized rather than being able to kind of be decided on a case by case basis. And I remember, I think your argument then was that if the if there wasn't a force uh, demanding that this sort of money transfer happen, there would likely be you know the same or more types of transfers, but done in a way that was uh, with the support of the people
1: yeah that that is how the europe should work and i think that's where the support for such schemes is so the northern member countries finland especially just don't want a centralized system of of um income distribution that's you know in in a federal level in the european union so that's how it is
0: uh, w- one thought that I'm, I'm sure some people are having is, you know, it's called or branded a recovery fund. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of the way that's being sold is it's important for keeping businesses and people afloat in the wake of this crisis. You also argue that you don't think it will lead to a recovery. So, can you just share a little bit about that argument?
1: Well, it's 750 billion against 14,000 billion, which is the uh, uh, the GDP of the European Union so 750 billion uh, against 14 trillion so i don't it just doesn't you know it doesn't add up in that sense and the crisis is global if you just look at the us numbers now you're, it seems that your unemployment is rising again china is experiencing bank runs already and you know economics have not recovered the global economy has not recovered from from the hit of the of the corona pandemic and now they think that, that the EU is trying to get us to believe that they are better in the distribution of funds. Or the centralized system is better of, of uh, uh, creating a stimulus than a national ones. I don't, that doesn't just fly. You know, it's it, it, all the majority of economists in Finland think that it would be more uh, productive for us to take the debt ourselves and, you know, use it to to resuscitate our economies and the fact is that giving money from the more productive countries to the less productive countries will lead less productive outcomes so it doesn't make economically it doesn't make any sense to create this fund
0: What do you think, what is the pathway for this to actually be passed? uh, And do you think it has any chance of actually getting there? I mean, obviously, you're you're kind of saying that it doesn't seem likely in the Finnish context, but uh, do you think there are other, other countries where it's
1: likely to have a hard time passing as well? I think in the Netherlands, Sweden... Denmark, at least, it will have a have a difficult time. We don't. It's difficult to say on the Finnish situation at this point, but like I said, that there is a mutiny growing, so it will it will not be passed easily. And you know, it, it, there's there's big big very made big problems in in uh, in many of the countries or the citizens of the citizen countries to accept this idea, and so it it will face a hard resistance, and and I think for a good reason because this is not. This is not what the EU was designed to do.
0: Do you think there is any resolution of this that uh, that ends up keeping the aims and original goals of the EU, or is or is it too far? Has the has the kind of the the window shifted too far?
1: I fear that this will lead to breaking of the European Union. Before it was just the euro, but when they tied the fate of the European Union or the mechanisms of the European Union to the euro this whole thing may fall apart. That's, that's the gamble they took. And I don't know, it, it, it was a stupid gamble, if you ask me.
0: <laughs> well, I really appreciate you jumping on and, uh, and, and sharing some of your thoughts. It was a really great follow-up from uh, the show that we had before. Where can people find you if they want to keep track of these conversations?
1: Like, uh, go to my Twitter account at, at uh, Thomas Malinin or uh, the website of our firm, the GNS Economics. So there's a lot of stuff There we we are concentrating on the on the issues of the European Union in during the fall. So go there and become our subscribers.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. It was always great to talk to you. Thanks. Part of why I wanted to have Thomas back is that he has a very clear way of explaining a lot of these issues going on. Second is that I think that he does represent one perspective, both economically, socially, politically, that is growing in Europe. Third, I wanted to have him back specifically because I think it's really important that we don't stereotype where these different perspectives come from. It's become all too easy to assume that someone who is a Euroskeptic, i.e. a Brexiter or something like that, fits one particular mold when actually these issues are much more complex and cut across a lot of different political persuasions. I think that we'd do much better, not just in the US but around the world, if we were able to engage with issues on their merits, on their basis. Rather than presuming someone's political perspective based on which group they happened to associate with before. Of course, there are lots of other perspectives on the European Union's plan and this recovery plan, and I will try to bring some of those on as well. But for now, I appreciate you listening. I hope you learned something today. and until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.
1: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail.